Sure, I'll break out the riding crop and tell you what you're allowed to do. Mm-hmm. All right. So, <laughs> sorry, I don't do do one more time. All right. So, um, <laughs> yes, do one more time. One more time. All right. So, <laughs> I don't know how that worked that way. I don't know. <laughs> Charles Webner. Oh, oh come God. on! We gotta get to it eventually. <laughs> I saw Rocky Balboa. And it was the first time I'd ever gone to a movie by myself. I really, for the first time, looked at the franchise. Because, like, that movie is full of references and homage and little tidbits that harken back to what made the franchise good to begin with. Think of it as the opposite of Jurassic World, where, yes, Rocky Balboa maybe... It could, it, maybe it could exist in a in a vacuum where the where nobody's ever seen Rocky or Rocky two or Rocky three or four. End of list. <laughs> but at the same time, it's good. It pays tribute in a way that isn't dependent on those references. Unlike Jurassic World, you know. So I, I really started looking into the lore and, and looking, and, you know, going back and thinking like, oh man, I remember, I remember that, I remember this. Because, like, Rocky was – the Rocky franchise was the age that you and I are. It was kind of an ironic, jokey sort of love because it defined the training montage. It, uh, you know, like all the cheesy stuff we get from movies like that, Rocky defined. And I started really looking at it and going back and watching the original Rocky, which won Best Picture in 1976. Let's not forget that. <laughs> the original Rocky is a great movie objectively in that it you remember jim shooter uh the marvel yeah. editor editor-in-chief uh, when i was a kid i went to a con in kc and i went to a panel which was just a lecture uh, by jim shooter where he talked about how to write a story which later would prove ironic when i got older but <laughs> right but he made a great point. He gave us the whole there's only seven stories speech. Right. If you want to know the ultimate story, you just watch Rocky. It's everything that we love about character, especially in America. It's mm -hmm. a relatable blue collar guy down on his luck, not really any prospects, not a lot of education, listless drug into a world of crime because he can't succeed at the only thing he's good at, which is <laughs> boxing. <laughs> It's a love story, and it's an underdog story. It's, it's the hero's journey mm -hmm. wrapped up in in, the, in Americana. And I went back and I watched that, and I thought about that, and I was like, wow, yes, there's a lot to this. And then I thought about the era in which it was made. Rocky was an indie film. Oh, yeah. That was not a big-budget movie. It was a tiny-budget movie. And I remember going to see Rocky Four in the theater, and that was the biggest movie. Hmm. It was huge. And... 
you go back and watch Rocky, and you're like, this might as well be an IFC. Oh, yeah. A24, it's going to pick that up. <laughs> yeah. It became apparent that the atmosphere of Hollywood, of America, paralleled the evolution of those films in a way that reality mirrored the tone setting and production of those films as they went along. And then I started looking into the making of those films, and the making of those films paralleled all of those things at the same time. And so I thought, like, what? is this not the great American movie franchise? I'm not saying in quality. <laughs> I'm saying in DNA. It has to be the consummate American movie franchise. To the extent in which it was one of the first American movie franchises that weren't just, like, serialized... You know, there were 50 racist Charlie Chan movies and there were a bunch of, you know. Right. Flash Gordon serials, whatnot. The only other thing we had close to a franchise was Star Wars. And that came out after Rocky. And that was only three movies. You know, in Star Trek, it only had, it hadn't even come nope, out yet. Star yet. Trek The Motion Picture hadn't even come out yet. Indiana Jones hadn't come out yet. So it defined Hollywood and and was defined by Hollywood at the same time. And the cultural zeitgeist in general. So the thing that's remarkable to me is that it managed to do so in every film. Not just the first one or second one. Or peaking with Rocky. Well, it did peak with Rocky Four, but like even five, which is terrible comparatively. And <laughs> I think it's understood to be a bad film, yes. It's the Star Trek five of the Rocky franchise, very obviously. <laughs> if only Shatner had directed that one. You know, each one, in its own way, parallels exactly the moment in time in which it was made. Unlike any other film franchise, even the Fast and Furious films, uh, which you can make a similar argument for those, Rocky somehow managed to never veer off course in that sense. Even though the quality and you know public reactions aren't quite the same as that it's a it's a, it's it's a meta uh, it's a mirror held up to both society and stallone um which is weird because stallone is so disassociated from human societies <laughs> you would think that wouldn't make any sense but the one that calls to my mind is freddy the nightmare on elm Street. okay okay you have the you have the first one it deals with societal issues as it progresses on and then you get, mm -hmm. what, like, was it New Nightmare? Which is the true meta... That's the meta one. Yeah. Unfortunately, that movie sucks, but the concept is great. Yes, just on a conceptual basis. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to bat for it. Or for the franchise as a whole. Absolutely. I was also thinking about the first Rocky and how important it was how it won the Academy Award. And it's such a film about that time period and about giving a good feeling. I was looking at the other nominated films and really it's the one that, that is able to give some escapism Sure, because your other films that were nominated that year that Rocky beat out okay. bound for glory, uh, all the president's men that's coming off the Nixon stuff network, which is, uh, you know, ahead of its time and taxi driver, which if there's nothing more relevant to today or then, uh, yeah, all the presidents have been network and tra taxi driver. How are those not all the most 1976 films ever made? Yeah. We're dealing with Vietnam, Nixon, and the death of journalism. 
because right around there, you got the Pentagon Papers. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's incredible. I didn't even know that one. That is meta in and of itself. And yeah, and you're right. It's interesting that Rocky, out of all of those, out of the bleakness of that era, of course Rocky is popular. Do you think Rocky would have been as successful in any other year? Like if it came out two years later or in 77 when Star Wars came out or 1980? Um, I don't think so. I think it probably needed to go up against that type of competition. It needed to be that ray of sunshine mm-hmm. in a bleak way. But that hope for America, Rocky was the perfect figure to get behind where you could, yes, I can identify with them and I can get into his journey and I can see myself, I can see the nation in Rocky, the the little engine that could, that doesn't actually do it. Right, right. But it's the look at the corporate greed and where the idea of journalism is going downfall of political institutions and the baggage we're carrying from Vietnam and the social unrest and sociopathy that will develop from those kernels. Well, Um, especially since like it it seems like a journey that was started with the optimism brought in by the Kennedy administration that was snuffed out and then turned into legend more than reality and then the optimism that Bobby brought and Martin Luther King brought and it, to a certain extent Malcolm X brought and Fred Hampton brought in the same era and all of whom were assassinated uh, before they could really uh, fulfill their potential. And then we finally got out of Vietnam, which is another like hopeful, pro- positive thing. And then the guy that got us out of Vietnam ended up being a corrupt piece of shit. So it seems like they needed something true. Like a real hero. Yeah. You needed a great American hope, and that is what Rocky is. But a hope that paid off, <laughs> you know? Well, well yes, it paid enough. off enough. <laughs> it's so funny that it it is this... Rocky's the gold standard of going along the journey, and the journey is what really matters, not the end goal. Yes. Because he doesn't win. People forget about this. He doesn't win. And he's not supposed to win that fight. That's irrelevant. Whether he wins or not, it doesn't matter. Because he is, by by participating, he has won. Exactly. You know, by giving his all, he wins. One might say by making this film, writing it, starring in it, and possibly having some help behind the camera, this was the win for Stallone. He was a sort of a down-on-his-luck actor. He'd done a couple of films, including a terrible porno that would later be uh, renamed The Italian Stallion after Rocky came out. (laughs) He had some bombs. Even though he had some good critical reviews, he was not a successful actor. Oh, no. I mean, if you look at his career before then, I mean, really, you're... Two uh, movies. Capone in 1975, Death Race 2000, which he's a side character in. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. He's uncredited in Cannonball. Wow. Pretty much nothing. And then he gets out of nowhere... He writes and stars in Rocky. It's almost like um, my big fat Greek wedding in that sense, except one turned into an amazing franchise and the other one was like, hey, that was a movie that we saw. Cool. It made a lot of money. Uh, Bye now. You can don't let the door hit you on the ass the way out. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it, it paralleled. Both Stallone's journey as an actor, which does diverge at some point, uh, which is interesting. And that kind of affects the quality of the of the films. But 
It was the salve for the collective ennui of America, especially since that's the bicentennial year. We were supposed to feel good about America, but we didn't. Mm. Carter was very unpopular, which is a shame because he's the best person that's ever sat in that chair. And the Nixon stuff, the Vietnam stuff, all of that stuff. America was supposed to feel good about itself that year. And Rocky was maybe the only thing that America could feel good about. And I think you're right about that. I think that's very true. So, but the origins of that actually go way further back. And one of the cool things about the Rocky franchise, one of the only good things Stallone does, because a lot of the stuff that he does, I'm guessing now at this point, is accidentally good. But he's done it consistently with those. Now, granted, we know for a fact that it's not really that he's a genius, because we've seen the Expendables movies, which are garbage, and should be great, but aren't. It's something similar to capitalizing on what Rocky Balboa does. You know, hey, I, I used to be something good. Let me wink and nod to nostalgia with all of my pals. And I'm going to give you exactly what you used to like 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Which is funny because, like, I mean, on paper, that's a great idea. The age of the muscle-bound action B-movie star that ends up being a Hollywood blockbuster star is over at that point. Way, way over. Mm-hmm. But something that does it well is JCVD. Something that does it poorly is The Expendables. Yes, but JCVD is also, I think it's trying to to be much more of a film. And the other one is trying to capture that dad dollar. Yeah, well, it's um, empty and superficial. Yeah, it's. I don't think it, it tries to be anything more than that. Or you're giving him more credit than he deserves seeing past that. <laughs> Right, which and also making those films more than they ever were in the first place. True, th- that is true. A lot of the great things that Rocky does, the all of those movies do, may be accidental, but for some somehow he manages to do it in six, five movies. Look at the names of the goddamn villains in those movies. Come on. Apollo Creed was weird enough, but at least you're like, okay, whatever. He's, a, you know, he picked his own name. You know, that's fine, whatever. And then, then you get to Clubber Lang, and you're like, okay, well, obviously he's not not really Clubber, but whatever. Boxing is kind of ridiculous. And then I, I love that any mother would name their child Clubber. Clubber. You're like, well, like, I anticipate this guy's going to be a steel-fisted boxer. And then you get to Ivan Drago, which is like, it's, it seems a little stereotypical, but like passable, totally passable, especially well, for that era. I mean, it also, I mean, those are actual Russian names, yeah. <laughs> yes, and I think it fits for the stereotypical nature of the film in general. Sure, yes, and we will get into that too, how the cheesiness of the subsequent escalating cheesiness actually fits the era in which they are made. Not like some movies where the franchise jumps a shark at some point and you're like, wow, this doesn't work because it's whatever. These are perfectly suited for the era in which they are made. And that's baffling to me. By the time you get to number six, though, I mean, it's like you're not even trying with the names. Like Tommy Gunn, Mason Dixon. Yeah, you have Union Kane and Tommy Gunn are in number five. Along with, oh, geez, um... Give me one. Mason the Line Dixon. Second. I mean, come on. 
Yeah, Mason. You know, it would have been fine if his last name was Dixon or his first name was Mason and his nickname was like Mason, quote unquote, Dixon or something. You know, that'd be fine. I'd be fine. Right. With that. that sounds like a boxing thing or a wrestling thing. That's fine. Oh, 100%. But his real name was Mason f-ing Dixon. You need to reevaluate. <laughs> no, no, uh-uh. Not, not happening. Yeah, and it's all produced by George Washington Duke, the Don King uh, promoter. (laughs) Right. That's the first time they addressed Don King, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, it's almost behind the time. It is. But we should should probably, like, do this in some type of order, right? You're right. Okay, so here, let's travel back in time, shall we? (laughs) Jump back in the Wayback Machine, all the way back to February 26th, 1939 in New York. (laughs) What the hell am I doing here? (laughs) There's a child born of German, Ukrainian, and Polish descent named Charles Wepner. Not Judge Wapner, Charles Wepner. Charles the Judge Wepner. <laughs> Charles Wepner. the gavel down. He was a. He, at that time, immigrants from Europe were not looked on favorably. There were a lot of uh, slurs being thrown around. Woof. Maybe even conflicting slurs, like piling slurs upon slurs upon yeah, slurs. German and Polish, you're in trouble, buddy. In 1939, whew, <laughs> that's not great. So he grew up on the mean streets of Bayonne, New Jersey. Bayonne is one of those weird, old-school, blue-collar, East Coast shipping and industrial towns. And it's it's a little like Oakland in that you can see New York from the Bay, just like Oakland can San Francisco, but it's the your smaller cousin of of the of New York. It's not a great place to grow up, and it's not a pleasant place to be. This is a quote from Wepner about growing up there. This was a tough town with a lot of people from the docks and the naval base, and you had to fight to survive. So he was about a year old when he moved in with his grandmother on 28th Street and Kennedy Boulevard. It's called Kennedy now. It used to be called Hudson. He was raised by his mother and his grandparents in a room that was a converted coal shed. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, recipe for success. He played basketball. That is something that happens a lot in in England still. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, so they have I don't know, I'm a I'm a soccer fan, a football fan, and there's like a a cup competition where every level is available to play. So, if you have a, just a beer league or if like the firefighters form a club, you can actually get up keep winning and play against the actual Premier League teams if you get there? Man, uh, soccer hierarchies are so baffling to me. They're, in the United States, it's it's always kind of a duality and, and then eventually a consolidation into a monolithic organization. We had the AFL, USFL, ABA, American League versus National League, and then they all eventually just kind of get absorbed into each other. It's a very American thing. But in Europe, the soccer things, I am so confused by the levels of competition. So imagine the softball team for like a police union, they end up getting to play the Royals. That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like anybody can play, and as long as you keep winning and you keep beating teams, everybody has a chance to win this cup. And that's probably more fair and more egalitarian. Yeah. It's a side cup. Mind you, so most... What? Well, the fact that they have different types of championships is baffling. It's like, oh, we didn't win the cup for our league. We won this cup for this guy in Yorkshire. So, yeah, there's at least three major cups, and then... We won Steve's cup. <laughs> oh, you got Bill's cup? 
You're not drinking from that, are you? Oh, man, you don't want to know where that's been. You've seen Bill, right? Uh, and Bill pissed in that cup. You realize that, right? <laughs> Bill can't even stand anymore, man. You know, that is an empty plastic milk jug, right? <laughs> Have you seen Bill's cup? <laughs> Why is it black on the bottom? <laughs> someday, someday, maybe we'll do a quick hitter where I explain soccer to you. Good. I'm sure all of our geek listeners will love you explaining soccer to me. I could explain it in a geeky way. True, we could. We could explain all sports in a geeky way. I mean, wait till we get to Andre Spider-Man Rising. (laughs) Charles Wepner. The judge? Judge Wepner. Yep. Judge Wepner joined the U.S. Marines. And while in the Marines, he became a member of the unofficial boxing team. And his shtick on the team was he was the guy that could just take other people's punches. Just take – you could hit him in the head. He was fine. He wasn't that bright to begin with, so. Well, I don't know if he's fine, but. No, no, he never was. He could, he could stand honest. up. He's, I'm pretty sure he's still alive, and he's not fine. But <laughs> uh, his, his shtick was he could take the punch and not go down or flinch that much. He became a champion, which, I mean, a champion at an airbase in an unofficial league just – I don't know. They – I don't think you get a belt for that, but I mean, you might get a literal belt, like somebody gives you your belt, <laughs> like the Boy Scout belts with the weird buckle. I, I thought you meant like the dad of the league was going to you know, give him the belt. <laughs> well, no, he could take that, yeah. but that wasn't the prize. Yeah, also, take it, judge. He didn't get the prize, as it turns out, or the source. <laughs> when there's only one Wepner remaining. It's the last man standing. When you're in a fight and you take off his head, <laughs> that's when you win. So he, he was crowned unofficial champion in the Marines. Uh, and then in 1975, Sports Illustrated did an article that said Wepner had saved the lives of three Marine pilots during uh, his time in the military, pulling them from their airplanes, which were on fire. So he was, much like Kennedy in that sense, he was an actual hero. He did save men's lives. But that wasn't in 75. That was actually during the period in which he was in active service during Vietnam. After his stint in the Marines, he became a professional boxer in 1964 on the Eastern Seaboard in club boxing, the small-time pro boxing rings in places like Secaucus, New Jersey. He was known as his nickname, his brilliant nickname, the Bayonne Bleeder. Because he just took punches constantly. (laughs) So, yeah, right after the Marine Corps, he uh, became a bouncer. He got to the point where, even as a a very inexperienced boxer, he became the New Jersey State heavyweight champion, which earned him a fight with George Foreman. George Foreman? I mean, that's... He had multiple bouts with Foreman. He was no joke. I mean, he wasn't good, but he was able to take a beating so well that he would just wear people out. He was like the rope-a-dope, but still taking the punches, <laughs> which is really awful. Well, I mean, I guess that explains where George Foreman learned it. Well, he learned it from Ali, but we'll get to Ali, too. Charles Webner. Charles Webner fought. Let's see. Oh, he fought Randy Newman. Wow. <laughs> there it is. He lost to George Foreman in 1969. At Madison oh. Square Garden. Hey. Wow. I mean, good on you, man. 
Getting that payday. Yes, he loses to George Foreman on August 18th, 1969 in Madison Square Garden. That is not anything to sneeze at. That's the big time. I mean, before that, he was doing like Scranton, Pennsylvania, Sunnyside Gardens in Queens, you know, like a city stadium in Bayonne. Plaza Arena in Secaucus, New Jersey, uh, the Felt Forum, Hiram Bithorn Stadium in Puerto Rico. He did fight at Wembley. That's interesting. <laughs> the Armory. He fought at the Armory in Jersey City, New Jersey. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. Big time, isn't it? So he actually had fought his way up to earn a bout with George Foreman, who, of course, kicked his ass. The match didn't go long. It was stopped in the third round. But the only reason it was stopped was because of an uncontrollable gash over his eye. But he couldn't stop the bleeding and he couldn't see. So the ref stopped the bout, which is good, but also not really indicative of how he might have actually performed against Foreman. Foreman just got him real good in the eye. It wasn't a knockout, and it wasn't by points. So his performance against Foreman and his previous record also earned him, right after that, a bout with Sonny Liston. Mm-hmm. And he went 10 rounds with Sonny Liston. <laughs> he got knocked out, but, I mean, 10 rounds with Liston. I mean, that's that's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy being that cheesy. After the match with Liston, Wepner needed 72 stitches in his face. Good Lord. He said that Liston was the hardest punch he ever took. And that's including huh. Foreman and other people that we'll mention coming up. But just, wow. Okay, good thing he never he wasn't around when Tyson was going. He'd have his head taken off. <laughs> no, that might have actually happened. <laughs> no, no, literally. And so then, after that, in the early 70s, at Wembley Stadium, he lost to a boxer named Joe Bugner. He's the- Joe the Insect Bugner? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Joe Battle Bugner. Battleboard Bugner. Same exact scenario, cut over his eye, couldn't see, third round, so they called the fight. He came on the scene, he was successful, and then he couldn't do it. Until that last fight with Joe Bugner, he won nine of his next 11 bouts, including former heavyweight champions. So he was legit. All of a sudden, this guy from nowhere was was the real deal. But he was still small-time. And really wasn't taken all that seriously. And he kind of had a lot of losses. for And for a heavyweight fighter, I mean, people don't take you seriously if you have, like, you know, 15 losses or whatever. So so in 1975, a gimmick bout. It was half gimmick and half sincere. He was a legitimate fighter in that he had some great wins and some serious cred. But he was also considered not a good fighter, just a tough fighter. So in 75 is... Uh, an exhibition, a lark, essentially. It was announced that Wepner would fight Muhammad Ali for the world heavyweight title, which is insane from some schmuck from Bayonne, New Jersey. Yeah. In context, this was the first boxing match after the Rumble in the Jungle. Oh, wow. Wow. And the fight was billed as give the white guy a break. Oh, my God. So he was the great white hope then. 100%. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, yeah, according to an article from Time Magazine called In Stitches, Ali was guaranteed $1.5 million for this fight, and Wepner was going to get, no matter what, $100,000. <laughs> <laughs> 
that was essentially the thing. Uh, the fight was more about Ali getting a, a purse and so showing that he was a street fighter who would go against the common man and was still, you know, connected to the real world, which honestly Ali wanted. He was that kind of guy, so he didn't want to seem detached and only going against cupcakes and stuff like that. Foreman was the same way. But $100,000 was nothing compared to the $1.5 million that Ali would earn, guaranteed. But it was way more than Wobner had ever earned basically in his life. So he was like, yes, sign me up right now. Let's do it. He went up to the Catskills and trained with famous cut man and trainer Al Braverman. While he was training, Braverman and another trainer named Bill Prezant, present, this doesn't sound right, saw Wepner's potential and honestly thought that this fight might be something real, not just a show or like a preseason football game. They really thought this might actually be a fight. And it was because it was the first time Wepner had ever been able to train full time instead of working during the day and then going to the gym at night. Since 1970, Wepner's days were road work in the morning, and then he was a liquor rep. So he had two jobs, Jeez. and they were blue-collar jobs. And then at night, he'd go work out at Bayonne Boxing Clubs. I mean, he's got cred, and he had never really actually devoted himself completely to boxing, which because he couldn't. He didn't, have <laughs> he didn't have the resources. So the match was held with Ali. The match was held on March 24th at the Richfield Coliseum in Richfield, Ohio, south of Cleveland. So before the match, Wepner was asked if he thought he could survive a bout with Ali, to which Wepner replied, and this might be apocryphal, but he said, I've been a survivor my whole life. If I survive the Marines, I can survive Ali. Hmm. That is why Survivor did the music for Rocky Three. That's not true. I just made that up. <laughs> So they fought. And the crazy thing was, Wepner wouldn't go down. Ollie was giving it his all, and Wepner would not go down. He just took every blow that, that Ollie gave him. In the ninth round, already nine rounds, Wepner knocked Ollie down. Although? And Ollie, of yeah. course, he did. He knocked he, him down. He, he did. Said, Although well, Ollie, Ollie says claims that, yeah, he, he, it was dirty. Yeah, he he yeah. dirty, some rabbit punches, and he tripped. And that stepped on his it, foot. It shouldn't be counted as a knockdown because it would have been one of the only four knockdowns in Ali's yes. career. <laughs> I mean, that's a guy that did not go down. But I mean, whether or not that's true, mm, who knows? I wouldn't be surprised. He seemed like a dirty fighter. But I mean, that's how you scrap, man. If you're a scrapper, that's what you do. You know. I mean, even Tyson, who's maybe the, I mean, other than Ali, the greatest boxer of all time, got real mad. Bit off Evander Holyfield's ear because Evander Holyfield kept headbutting him the entire time because Evander Holyfield is a famously dirty boxer. So uh, Wepner, prior to the fight, told his manager, Ali is the king of boxing, and it's a boxing, not with no G. Whereupon the manager responded, yeah, yeah, Chuck, but in the ring, you're the king of dirty fighting. You're both royalty. There you go. So this also might be apocryphal, but this is, I think, an equally brilliant quote from this legendary fight. After he knocked Ali down, Wepner went to Al Braverman in his corner and said, quote, Al, start the car. We're going to the bank. We're millionaires. 
To this, Webner's manager said, you better turn around. He's getting up and he looks pissed off. <laughs> Which is like maybe the greatest cinematic uh, boxing moment oh, I can yeah. think of that isn't in a Rocky oh, movie. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> you, can, fantastic. you can see it in your head, you know, as, as you hear oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like Ali was Jason Voorhees <laughs> getting up after you think you've killed him with your... Yeah, Ali just went Super Saiyan and is going to wail on him. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, it's like a horror movie. He's like... Hey, don't, don't walk away. He's not dead yet. You know. Did you see the body? <laughs> right, yeah, you better double tap that. <laughs> and, of course, the whole thing goes, was it a full 15? Yeah. And Webner lost. Yeah, apparently he was just pummeled from that point on. But he could take a beating. That was the oh, thing. Yeah. Basically, he just took a beating the entire time. And it worked. Stood toe-to-toe with the world champ, the greatest boxer of all time. Uh, and Ali, I think, was probably frustrated because he couldn't take him down he couldn't he couldn't finish him off no matter what he did he knocked him out in the last round yeah and i also don't know how many times wepner got knocked down during that fight but he did get knocked out at the very end but it took 15 rounds yeah yeah 15 rounds with ali before you get knocked out i mean foreman couldn't brag that i mean no no verdict to the judge right there my friend so it was a classic underdog performance right that fight specifically Sylvester Stallone, the struggling actor, claims, and I don't know if it's really true, but he claims that he went and saw that fight. Hmm. And in that fight, he thought it was one of the greatest, you know, sports stories ever to play out in real life and was inspired by it. So he thought it was too great a story to pass up as a film. This is a quote from Stallone. On my 29th birthday, I had $106 in the bank. My best birthday present was a sudden revelation that I had to write the kind of screenplay that I personally enjoyed seeing. I relished the stories of heroism, great love, dignity, and courage, dramas of people rising above their stations, taking life by the throat and not letting go until they succeeded. But I had so many ideas in my head I couldn't focus on one. To cheer myself up, I took the last of my entertainment money, which, I don't know if you're that judicious about your money... <laughs> No, oh, this is my entertainment money. This is my food money. The Red Rubber Band is my entertainment wad. <laughs> he took the last of his entertainment money and went to see the Muhammad Ali Chuck Wepner fight on closed circuit TV. That's the thing that they don't <laughs> that they don't play up. He didn't go into the fight. He watched it on CCTV. <laughs> he paid somebody to go into a smoke filled room to watch it on a black and white TV. Now you want to see the tits or you want to see the boxing? He made it seem like he was like front row. No, he watched it in the back room of a strip club. He had to pay some dude 50 bucks. <laughs> he said, Wapner, Wapner, wow. Wapner, a battling, bruising club fighter who had never made the big time, was having his shot. It wasn't at all regarded as a serious battle, but as the fight progressed, this miracle unfolded. He hung in there. People went absolutely crazy. Wepner went 15 rounds and established himself as one of the few to ever go the distance with Ali. We had witnessed an incredible triumph of the human spirit, and we loved it. And, you know, Stallone, like a lot of people back then, lived in a weird, not real, sort of imagined fantasy version of what America is. You know, the idea that no matter what, everybody's got the same shot and everybody can do it if you just work real hard, which is not at all true, but a fantastic fantasy about the American dream or whatever. Well, it, it's a great cage to put us all in. To dangle yeah. that in front of us, but we can't ever get there. It's the, you know, the rich white man's ideal thing. Like, let them all think they have a chance. They're going to 
work hard for you to make you money, and they're never going to get any further. And then applaud you, who is only successful because you're exploiting them, mm-hmm. as examples of why that works, even though it is provable that it doesn't, by virtue of the fact that you're being exploited. And that, As you can tell, we're hardcore Republican Reaganites. Obviously, we're Reaganites, yeah. Big Trump fans. Okay, so he wrote a script for a fictionalized version of the Wepner Ali fight, where a blue-collar, middling, down-on-his-luck fighter with heart but no success was picked randomly by the heavyweight champ, which in his version was a fictionalized boxer named Apollo Creed, who is very obviously a Muhammad Ali stand-in. Trash-talking and eccentric nature of his performances and the fact that he was a finesse fighter, that kind of thing. It was all very obviously Muhammad Ali. And Stallone wrote uh, a character called Rocky Balboa, which was a which is obviously a stand-in for Chuck Wepner, but also paying homage to Rocky Marciano. Three days. He wrote that script in three days. That's fucking impressive. It is. If that movie wasn't good, we'd go, well, obviously it was written in three days. <laughs> but considering the fact that that script is great, three days is incredible. The idea was that he was going to go up against the heavyweight champ, a uh, blue-collar dude who was clueless, not very well-educated, just like Chuck Wepner, and sort of embody the idea of the blue-collar American worker and the American dream of success, which is kind of ironic because it's actually exactly the American dream in that the only reason he was put in that position was pure luck and privilege for having that opportunity. But it was presented as the fictionalized version of the American dream. But he worked hard his whole life. And if it weren't for that random circumstance, completely one in a million chance, he would have just died a poor, you know, uneducated schmuck (laughs) working as a leg breaker for the mob on the docks. Which, by the way, also, he took a lot of stuff from on the waterfront. Let's be perfectly honest. We can't overlook that. (laughs) I could have been a contender. (laughs) Obviously, we know where you're going, bro. And Stallone's delivery of lines in that is about as coherent as later, like, Island of Dr. Moreau, Brando. (laughs) It's called acting, Skip. Oh, you mean pinning your lines to the shirt of the guy in front of you is acting? Okay, Hey, hey, there were three people to be nominated in the same year for Best Actor and Best Screenplay. Charlie Chaplin, Orson Welles, Sylvester Stallone. Wow, that is an amazing, sad, sad look at America. (laughs) (laughs) Because Charlie Chaplin, yeah, brilliant in his own way, absolutely. Orson Welles, one of the most brilliant, amazing filmmakers of all time. Sylvester Stallone wrote Expendables. (laughs) The American Dream, Skip. The American Dream made manifest. Oh, that should have been his boxing nickname. Okay, so... In the first Rocky, the premise was that he was just going to get picked randomly to show that Apollo Creed isn't above the fray, that he's still relatable to the common man, because he was losing popularity after becoming champ because he only fought cupcakes. Mmm, cupcakes. Mmm, cupcakes. He wanted to prove that he was still the kid from the streets doing the street fighting, like Ryu and Ken, but... Actually, Balrog would be more appropriate, yeah, but... Mm. But Balrog's definitely more of a Tyson. Well, he might be Leon Spinks now that yeah. I think about it. Cause, but, I mean, he eventually becomes Tyson. You know, like, Superman was Moses, but then he becomes Jesus. It's kind of the same thing. Like, <laughs> Wait, I read the Bible. What's the difference? Uh, isn't Leon Spinks Jewish? I think he might be Jewish. 
Anyway. Leon Spinks was born in St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, that's right. He is a Missourian. I forgot about that. He also ended up being a crazy person. I mean, you get professionally hit in the head. It's the uh, the the real Rudy, who claimed when I, I saw Rudy. Rudy came to my high school. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think right. he came to my high school too. Uh, Stallone, much like the real Rudy, claimed that shooting Rocky was as tough as Rocky's 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. Quote, we didn't have the money to shoot a normal union film at the time in Philadelphia. Okay, I believe that. However, f*** you for skipping over the union jobs. So we had to travel in a van. Believe that. Sure. He says, and the film crew would jump out whenever John Avildsen, Avildsen, John Avildsen. John Advilson. Advilson. He was the director. Uh, Stallone did not direct the first Rocky. We have to keep that in mind. Basically, anytime John Advilson saw an interesting location, they'd pull the van over and shoot. Yeah, which, I mean, it's really kind of guerrilla filmmaking in a lot of ways. Which is miraculous that it works, because they had to constantly rewrite on the fly and reshoot and ad-lib dialogue and ad-lib uh, scenes with crowds and things like that, because they didn't have the money. So the the original script wasn't anything close to what showed up on camera. But one of the things that worked really well, what made it seem more professional, was a, a man named Garrett Brown had invented the Steadicam. It's the first time, one of the first times this was used. They hired him to, to, to use the camera on the shoot in these on-the-fly sequences. And it gave a sense of professionalism because it looked like a it looked like a shot that was staged and storyboarded and, and well thought out. So in the final scene where he actually fights Apollo Creed, instead of paying for professional extra actors, which that's a thing to do is not pay people who do this for a living, the production pulled the Blues Brothers and offered random people on the street a free chicken dinner. <laughs> to come see a fake boxing match. 4,000 people showed up. Wait, I get chicken and free fake boxing? What's the catch? <laughs> and so they got a crowd of 4,000 people, and they shot it all of that stuff in one day. Wow. In that scene, every time it looks like there's 10,000 people there, it's because they would make all of the extras run to one corner of the arena. So they would take that shot and then they'd have run everybody run to the other side and take that shot. So it looked like the place was packed. <laughs> it was fried chicken. That's how they got. Yeah. All right. And so there's some really fun, interesting meta stuff in the film itself, not just overarching nebulous stuff we've been talking about, but there's some fun, interesting little quirks that happened in the movie, too. Like, for instance, when Rocky goes to the ring the night before the match, he has this line, which is improvised. When he looks at the poster of him versus Apollo Creed, he makes a comment about how his shorts are the wrong color. That was true. <laughs> the production department actually messed up the poster. So that scene wasn't even him acting. That's essentially how that entire production went. Accidents, ad-libs, and mistakes that somehow, despite all odds, just like the plot of Rocky, <laughs> hung in there and managed to pull off an excellent performance. 
if there's anything we found in our series of films that we've we've discussed, mm-hmm. it is that accidents and happenstance make some of our favorite features, be they Star Wars, Jaws, Rocky, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Absolutely. Well, you know, when 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 Harrison Ford shot that dude he's supposed to have that long sword fight with, mm-hmm. the real reason he did that was because uh, he was hungover and had horrible diarrhea. Yep, yep. Magic ruined. <laughs> Sorry, kids. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a moment where, and it's funny because they revisit this moment in Rocky Two, where Rocky makes a comment on his robe um, that it, he comments that it's several sizes too big, which it is. And is one of the better scenes in the movie because he always has this air of sort of like cluelessness, but also like sincerity. Like in the press conference with him and, and Apollo, like the, the reporters are asking, they're trying to prod him for like controversial statements. And Apollo's putting on this performance, obviously like a complete manufactured diatribe. And then Rocky just doesn't seem to get it. They ask him things and he gives them genuine answers that everyone laughs at. And he's very confused as to why everyone thinks it's funny because he's just that dull and that like (laughs) he claims he's not punchy. But if I had to use a word to describe Rocky Balboa, it's definitely punchy. And so he claims that he he offhand mentions that the robe is too big. Also, that was real. They made the robe too big. (laughs) But it's so brilliant because the character seems self-aware and his lack of class or his lack of polish, maybe – it's juxtaposed to the performative Apollo Creed, the Muhammad Ali, you know, archetype. The That accident actually totally works. And then in Rocky II, there's a similar scene that he ad-libbed when he goes up against Apollo again, and he's standing in the entryway to the ramp where they come down, and he looks at Mickey and he's like, hey, well, yeah. Rope fits this time. Nice. You know, like he can. <laughs> but that also works really, really well. And so many accidents and so many yeah. unintentional gaffes make the movie what it is. It's a little like Ghostbusters in that way. It's a little like, you know, there's so many movies that are so good because of the mistakes that are made. Or like in um, Close Encounters, one of the greatest moments in that movie is when the little kid sees the, you know, the, the spaceships and he goes, Toys! That was not in the script. It was so good. You have to use it in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're just so sincere. And they work with both the character and the actor. It feels natural. And yeah. naturalism really plays on the screen. That is Rocky in a nutshell. <clears throat> it feels natural. It feels sincere. There's that scene where Rocky takes Adrian ice skating, right? And the original script version of that scene, there was supposed to be a huge crowd there. Rocky was getting sort of overwhelmed by all the people that were skating around. It was, it was supposed to be more straightforward. But then they couldn't afford to rent out the rink. So mm-hmm. they could only basically bribe the guy that worked there. <laughs> then they shoot in the rink after hours. So it was empty. And on top of that, Stallone didn't know how to ice skate. So he's jogging alongside her while she skates in an empty rink, which is maybe one of the sweetest moments in the movie based completely on accident, based completely on ineptitude and budget. You don't know what you have here, do you? It's like, <laughs> it's like, uh, uh, you know, goodwill hunting. And so it, it may be the most appropriate moment in the parallel between real life and Rocky, the movie plot is 
when the film gets finished, people behind the production seem very positive about it, but it had not been seen by anybody really outside of the production. So it gets, uh, you know, screened around Hollywood and small screenings with uh, producers and directors and writers, people like that, and test audiences. So, yeah, you know, people basically gave it a generalized positive review. But the one that everyone was anxious about was the screening at the Director's Guild, because that would be in front of 900 Hollywood inside professionals, the whole shebang. And Stallone claims that the theater was packed. It seemed like a sellout. But the audience did not react to the movie at all. It seemed like it was playing like the Hindenburg. Kind of like in the producers when they walk out and they go to the lobby because it's such a disaster. He says, quote, the laughs weren't coming where they were supposed to. The fight scenes, fight scenes seemed to be listless. And the response was as the response was. And I just sat there. And as everyone left the theater, I couldn't believe it. I really blew it. I was humiliated and saddened by it. So I walked down three flights of stairs out of the theater and everyone from the theater, everyone in the audience, were standing there waiting for me. And they started to applaud. I will never experience a moment like that again. That's awesome. That is exactly the end of Rocky, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I mean, that first movie is the ultimate example of being Rocky. And so, of course, that's it. it's an indie movie made on a very small budget. It goes up... Uh, People love it. People go nuts for it. It gets nominated for many Academy Awards and ends up winning Best Picture. I think it won, was it three Oscars? I think it was like three How many? Oscars. One? Yeah. I know it was nominated for like eight, but I think it yes, won like 1977. I think it won like three. If I remember right, unless I'm thinking of a different movie. Uh, uh, actor. Nope, 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 nope. No, it wasn't. Nope. He was nominated for a bunch of stuff, but. It won director. Wow. Yeah, okay. Um, Definitely won best picture. It won best picture. It won Did... best editing. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, which is hilarious because yeah. it was almost all ad lift. <laughs> all right, you, you pieced together, right? Yeah, that's all it won. I'm surprised it didn't win, like, best screenplay or. It was nominated for Best Screenplay. Which is fun, which is also kind of ironic because it won three Oscars, including Best Picture. And it went up against some real heavyweights that year, too. Yeah, and it's also like all the President's Men and Network won for Screenplay. So, I mean, okay, that's fair. come on. So, essentially, Rocky is the mirror to society and Stallone. It represents the zeitgeist of the American mindset at that time. In a way that I don't think any other film ever has. And if it were just that the first film did so. Because there have been films like that where you're like, this is the perfect film for this time. And then they come back and they try and do a sequel or something. And it's just like, doesn't feel as good. Uh, like Super Troopers, for mm -hmm. instance. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I mean, it's not a good example. But still, <laughs> it just popped in there. Well, Ghostbusters is a great example. A brilliant film, almost immaculate film, that most of the good stuff that happened in it was by accident. Yeah. The sequel is disappointing, but the Rocky franchise is different because the sequels, no matter what you think about them quality-wise, are just as emblematic of the time in which they were made that it's rather mind-blowing and, I think, unique to 
cinema in general. It spans from indie film, unnecessary sequel, franchise, big budget over the top, shark jump, trying too hard to be grounded again, revisiting an old franchise, which is what everybody did in 2006. And then set up a new franchise. And then set up a new franchise, which is what everybody did later. Each of those films are the perfect example of what our pop culture is at that time. Good or bad, it just is. And that is why you all need to come back next week. Exactly. And we will not spend as much time on each movie. <laughs> Lies. Because <laughs> that's a lot. This is going to be a seven-month series. <laughs> it's going to be like Highlander. <laughs> yeah. We do this for the next year of our lives. We didn't even do that for Predator. <laughs> we can talk about Predator. Oh, we can talk about Predator. Predator to the squeakful. <laughs> that explains a lot about Denny Glover, though. Hey, I'm getting told for this sh- it would be really great if their characters from Lethal Weapon were sent in to investigate the Predator murders. and like, <laughs> But then they were turned into anthropomorphic cartoon mice. Sure, why not? Yeah. Why not? You know, we need some cheese on this Baconator. Uh... Well, I was hoping that Mel Gibson would just get run through, but I never get what I want, do I? No. Such is life. Such is this podcast. But we hope that you got everything that you wanted. Just ruminate on this very concept. Arnold Schwarzenegger, only one in Predator, because the thing killed itself. Danny Glover beats one in hand-to-hand combat. That's America, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Only in America! It's late-stage capitalism. It's the hypocrisy of the American dream. It's Rocky. It's Nietzsche. It's, uh, we've got some Dostoevsky going on there. There's a bunch of Tolstoy. Yup. Danny f***ing Glover in a shallow mimicked version of his character from Lethal Weapon beats a predator in hand-to-hand combat. Think about that on your long drive home, staring into the void. It's staring back. (laughs) So anyway, that's our thing. Yeah, that's the podcast, I think. I guess. (laughs) So is that what we're doing? I have no idea. So, uh, if you want, give us, like, a five-punch review. Uh, if you want to share it online with your friends. If you want CTE, please listen and subscribe to our podcast. Yes, we'll give you some punch-drunk love, as it were. But we're going to get into uh, why those movies are great and bad at the same time. Stay tuned for that. So don't forget to, like he said, like and subscribe. Yeah, that's what I said. Don't forget to support your local comic shops and retailers. Buy those comic books. Buy them comics, baby. So don't forget to kiss Paulie on the lips before he goes to bed. Don't forget to walk Adrian home from the pet shop. Don't forget to get that dog he calls Punchy. It was his actual dog in the first one. Yeah, but he called it Rocky, and his name is Rocky. (laughs) That's bizarre. Don't forget to feed your pet turtles. Don't forget to drink your raw eggs. Don't forget to end this podcast. Oh, you're right. That's right. See, just like Rocky, we're going to end this without winning. Let's <laughs> just call it. <laughs> From Dispatch Ajax, we'd like to say Godspeed, fair wizard. Please, go away.